Welcome to Pot to Popular, a podcast where we interview the media, marketers, and moguls who are mainstreaming cannabis. Join along as we learn from the greatest minds in this industry and learn about how cannabis is becoming part of popular culture, health, wellness, and industry. Welcome to today's episode of Pasta Popular. I'm your host, Rosie Matteo. Today, we're joined by George Mancherl, CEO of Bespoke Financial. George is joining us today to talk about his background coming from Wall Street and how he and his team are creating specific lending products that address specific industry pain points. So he's going to talk about some of the recent integrations and where he sees the future of cannabis banking. Welcome, George. Hey, Rosie. How are you? Good. I'm so glad you're joining us today. Um, first, I would like to start. Give us like the 90 second elevator pitch about Bespoke. Sure. Who yeah. And first, uh, thanks for having me. But um, Bespoke Financial is a uh, licensed lender that focuses on providing non-diluted financing for cannabis companies all across the supply chain. Our clients span, you know, coast to coast. Um, we're live in over 15 individual cannabis markets within the U.S. right now. I've had a, a long track record of working with these companies, and I don't think there's anyone out there that understands the unique challenges, but also the very unique opportunity that exists in cannabis. And our focus here is really just enabling the growth of the different operators in the industry. I love it. And you know that just leads me, I always like to get into the background. So George, you're among a select few Wall Street veterans who decided to take their skills into the cannabis space um, just as the industry was taking off. Can you give the listeners a little brief overview of your background and that moment that made you realize that, you know, cannabis was this opportunity and you wanted to jump into it? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I am originally from New York, um, you know, lifelong New Yorker, even going to college out out on the East Coast. And then 2013, um, I moved to L.A. and that was my first exposure to any state with any form of legalized cannabis. And, you know, I myself was a uh, late mover into the cannabis market, um, you know, really at the age of 25. And so I had seen one, how I responded very positively to it. I had seen after moving to LA, you know, how the non-psychoactive cannabinoids can really help improve the quality of life. So it definitely was a believer in the product itself. Um, the flip side of that is from a social policy standpoint, I do think like the war on drugs was just a giant waste of, of time and energy. It's resulted in more harm than good. And so being in California in 2018, when the recreational markets turned on, you know, it just seemed like a very obvious move, very exciting to get get involved with an industry that was starting from, you know, stage one. And for me at that point in my in my professional career, I'd, I'd gotten, you know, I was looking for my next challenge and, you know, coming from a background that in the finance world of looking at debt investing and, you know, really illiquid one-off opportunities, funky collateral, I seemed to have the requisite skill set to at least take a stab at it. Um, fortunately, I was able to meet my other co-founders, my investors, the other team members that have joined on and, and, you know, worked with us since 2018 to build Bespoke, but really it just came from a match of, you know, seeing a very exciting opportunity, um, you know, understanding what that pressing need was for these companies to have access to financing without giving up ownership or control of their company. And so, you know, sometimes you just have to, you know, take your best guess and jump in. And that's what we did. And it's just been a whirlwind since. That's amazing. And just a little bit more about that. So have you actually applied like that mainstream investment experience to this like highly regulated industry? And what do you think is like the greatest learning curve um, when you first started in 2018? Like some of those differences that just seem so glaringly obvious. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, in terms of, you know, skills that apply over, you know, 
cannabis business is, you know, I'd say about 70%. Evaluating a cannabis company is about 70% similar to looking at any other potential borrower that you look at, right? You want to have a good understanding of what their, their business model is. You want to have a good degree of confidence in the management teams that are that are working this business. You know, do they understand what they're working towards and, and you know, how they would use your capital in order to improve their business, either from a growing revenue perspective or from an increasing profitability standpoint. So all of that is, is you know, you know, fundamentals of business is, you know, bring in more money than, than you know, you're spending to keep the lights on as, as a general right. takeaway. In terms of the learning curve, what, what, you know, I realized very quickly after looking into the space and then what everyone who's come on board and, and you know, anyone who's really gotten involved in the cannabis industry, I could say, is that this industry, despite the fantastic growth that it's had from, you know, revenue and from, you know, adding new consumers, they've managed to do all this, I think, with having effectively both hands tied behind their, their back, you know, from a sense of not having a very clear cut access to banking that's on par with the level of services and the cost that any other non-cannabis business would have, you know, finding basic things like insurance. Um, it's more of a chore than it is for any other you know, small business operator who hangs up a shingle, you know, you start to suddenly get flooded with these vendors and, and service providers and cannabis, you have to go out there and find them yourselves. Just the whole cash element, right? And how do you deal with that? And how do you vet other operators? And, and you know, there's no credit rating agency, there's no trade rating agency where you could look up and see, okay, is this potential customer of mine on the B2B side, someone who will ultimately pay for the goods or services that I'm providing to them. So it's really opaque. Um, there, you know, there's, there's always challenges in, in building a new business. You know, there is an established infrastructure in the market and we've seen a lot of challenges, you know, macro events ever since we started bespoke, you know, like starting in 20, 19 when the equity investors left and then Vapegate and then COVID and, and, you know, everything just sort of, you know, every now and then you could be doing everything right and keeping your head down and, you know, the world could change around you. Right. And we're definitely in a, in a period right now where there's just a lot of volatility in the world. And so any business owner is kind of looking at, at their capital and really understanding where the challenges might be and what they have to do if we're facing a recession, if we're facing a contraction in the economy and cannabis is no different in that regard. Yeah. And just for our, re- our listeners who like might not even understand, like what are the primary financing options for cannabis companies today? And, you know, and we know those are limited. So how does that actually impact their ability to scale on a granular level? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, um, you know, back in 2017, 2018, as Canada was legalizing their cannabis market, um, you know, publicly listing in Canada became an, a, a viable path for some of these companies that had much larger aspirations of being an MSO, being vertically integrated to go in and, you know, access capital at an institutional level. That window snapped shut in 2019. And so ever since then, it's been very, very hard for any cannabis company to really look to the public markets for any form of financing. And again, that's equity capital. So you're giving up ownership in your company, you're, you're changing your board, you're having other voices at the table. Um, what we found in, in our experience is that the vast majority of this industry is small to mid-sized businesses. And you know, it, it really is a story of people who've had a passion, had an idea, bootstrap their business, you know, with either, you know, their own capital, friends and family, and really just working towards that positive cash flow and then reinvesting that money back into the business in order to scale. And, you know, when we first started, especially when the equity window closed, it was, it, it, you know, you had very few, if any options in terms of financing, right? Institutional investors, don't like the space because it's federally illegal. Banks obviously can't can't participate until there's some movement on regulation. And so really it was a, you know, 
they were strung out and really the assumption was that you couldn't access financing at least until legalization hit. And right now the world I'd say is in, well, not the world, but you know, fast forward three years and in the cannabis space, the financing options have definitely improved. Um, they're not at the level that you would expect any legal, federally legal market to be at. But you know, right now I'd say on the debt financing world, commercial real estate continues to be, I'd say, the biggest bucket um, for any operator that owns their real estate. You know, it's relatively easy for them to go and, and finance that property or do a sale leaseback, whatever the case is. Then there's a significant drop off in terms of capital that's available, right? A lot of these companies are still relying upon, you know, leveraging their networks. I think people have definitely moved past the friends and family round, but now it's, you know, who in your network is, is, you know, either has an intro to a family office or a high net worth individual. And, and you know, those investors are definitely getting burned in the public market. So I think there's some amount of capital that's flowing through from those ancillary spaces, but by and large, you know, a lot of this industry really is left to its own devices and they, they really have had to get creative. And obviously that's a void that, you know, Bespoke is increasingly working to fill, um, but, you know, it takes time and, and, you know, the market itself is growing so, so rapidly that, you know, there's always a, an element of catch up um, in, in, in terms of the opportunity in front of us at Bespoke. Right. And, you know, to that point, let's just talk a little bit about, you know, your bespoke lending products um, that, that are addressing these like pain points. How does the company, how do your recent integrations better support your target clients? Talk a little about the bespoke products and how it's helping. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's all about, you know, it, it's a mix between how do we find the right borrowers that we think can really succeed with the capital that we have that, that we have to offer. And the flip side is, as a business, it's like, how do you make sure your services are available in a streamlined and efficient of a manner as possible, right? And then the third level from a risk management perspective internally, it's how can we make sure that, you know, our borrowers are doing what they're supposed to be doing, you know, only transacting in the legal market? How do we validate the numbers that we're seeing as we're sort of gauging how much financing to provide? And so the technology integrations and, you know, the, our ability to basically streamline the application process to have a greater degree of confidence in, in, the, in the numbers that we're looking at. And then ultimately to be able to turn around to the financial world where, you know, all the money resides and sell the story of, you know, you don't have to take this on faith. Um, you know, these companies aren't audited but you don't need auditing if you are in a position to really do that audit or validation yourself. And so it definitely helps all three parties that are involved. And I've always said, you know, Bespoke is, is you know, we're, we're a licensed lender, but I think of ourselves from a bigger picture as a conduit, right? You have a wall of capital sitting, you know, with the Wall Street crowd, and then you have the cannabis industry that really could use that financing and we're the bridge in between. And so, you know, for us to be able to build on data capture, to be able to tell a more compelling story and to be able to respond to clients and, and really ease the burden of, you know, what they have to do within underwriting, you know, what, what information do we need from them that we can now just automatically see from, from, you know, their records or their metric or, or really any of these other systems. It really just does streamline and make life a lot easier so we can move faster, more efficiently and less painlessly for, for the customers themselves. Yeah. And to follow up on that. So you guys have spent the past three years, like betting potential deals with your team. So, you know, along those lines, what are the biggest mistakes new and experienced cannabis companies make when addressing their debt? Right. Like you guys are thinking about the underwriting, like how do you assess that? And where do you see people like make the wrong turn? Yeah. And, and um, you know, it, it, it comes from, I think, a good place. This, this isn't necessarily malicious, but there are a lot of business owners, you know, again, if you if you don't have a ton of resources, if you don't have a team around you, some of the nitty gritty uh, housekeeping tends to fall to the back burner because it's not as important as, you know, 
making sure product goes out the door so that you can sell it. So when it comes to one thing that we see a lot is, you know, companies that where we see their product, you know, we like their story, we like the teams, but, you know, they come to us and they don't have financials to provide us. And, and you know, they can't, they, it becomes a whole exercise for them to go and close their books for like the past year and then get us the numbers. And that always turns into a mess. And so for us, you know, the one thing I say is, you know, it's not fun and it's not exciting, but, you know, having a consistent, in internal procedures for for tracking your business progress and understanding how you're doing from from a numbers perspective it's huge and i think it's something that once as much as it's not fun any any responsible manager or team leader once they see the numbers they realize the value of you know okay now i have an absolute handle on how the business is doing right rather than anecdotally moving day to day and and trying to keep a, a handle on how your business is doing so that's number 1 and again it's overly complex in this industry where there's a lot of cash. Um, but, you know, the, the good news is over the past couple of years, there've been much more affordable options for outsourcing that functionality, right? So at this day and age, you know, we're at a place where anyone who approaches us who doesn't have their financials, um, you know, in order, that's fine. We have multiple partners that can do that for you and you can go work with them and get to a place. And ultimately, even if you don't become a bespoke client, that's something that'll pay dividends for you many, many years going forward, you know, in terms of whatever the next chapter of your company is. Absolutely. And you guys have been smart because you do have an impressive uh, investor network um, that includes cannabis and mainstream firms like as advisory. What are the valuable insights or guidance you guys have received from your investor networks? I know you guys are always learning also. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's really what's most impactful for me is just to get keep abreast of what the typical uh, institutional investors mindset is when it comes to cannabis, right? You know, when I first started in 2018, you know, there were were a lot of former coworkers that just thought, you know, I had lost it, you know, moving into cannabis uh, from from Wall Street. It's like, okay, good luck with whatever that is, right? And now over the number of years, you're in a position where this is this is one of the few industries that ha- that has had spectacular consistent growth right new markets are turning on there's political gridlock in DC but that's not stopping the industry from continue to scale continue to grow the consumer base is is increasing a lot of the propaganda from the war on drugs is slowly fading away as people sort of realize okay this this isn't what i thought it was i should give it a shot and so on the margin we've seen that translate into additional capital that's flowing in people that are more willing to look look at the space um but for me it's more just a, just a sanity check of really what is everyone else you know how, how do we, how is this market perceived from the outside looking in and then how do we change that narrative to be more and more accurate over time yeah and i touch on something you just spoke about which is you know regulation and legislation is safe banking passed for a sixth time in the house earlier this year sure it's unlike any significant you know we know cannabis cannabis reform is going to happen to law this year so what role do you see dedicated cannabis lending platforms playing once mainstream financial services can legally work with plan touching businesses when eventual uh, regulation does pass that helps, you know, banking. Yeah. I mean, so for us internally, um, you know, if you told me in 2018 that we'd be here in 2020 and still there's been no movement on the federal level, I would, I would have thought you were joking. Right. Um, That being said, where we sit right now, our baseline in-house expectation is that you're not going to see any any sort of meaningful legislative change happen before 2024. Um, you know, we think that the next presidential cycles is probably the most viable time that 
Democrats can, you know, use this as a tentpole issue, gather more votes, um, you know, depending on how the economy is doing at the time, any sort of growth in the job market um, or any industry would be something that's very welcome. Additional tax revenue for any of these states, including for the IRS, just any form of clarity in terms of, you know, what the IRS should be doing. I think that's probably when, you know, that you have the highest odds of any sort of legislative change. But again, none of these legislative pieces, you know, that are in front, that are up for debate or, or potential vote, they're not cure-alls. What, what they are are a first step to implementing a new regime, right? And, and you know, people talk about federal legalization. That could take form in, in, you know, a thousand different ways, right? Like, is that a moving from class one to class two? Is that a full-on legalization of the product? Does the federal government come up with regulations that sit on top of state regulations? Or do they step out of the way and say it's a state-by-state state state issue? Is there going to be interstate commerce? There's a whole host of nitty-gritty details that need to be ironed out. And so, Looking at the industry, it'd be really, really good if we could see something like safe banking get passed because that's such a limited use case um, bill that would then solve a whole host of problems for the cannabis industry, right? And and really remove a lot of the hurdles while the rest of the the you know other factors are, are discussed. And I understand that as it's you know. The, the reluctance of certain politicians to pass any legislation until you address things like social equity and how do you undo the harm on the war on drugs. That's super important, can't get lost in the shuffle. And I can understand you don't want to suddenly solve the problems and then it's hard to get everyone's attention again in order to address the societal cost of it. But that being said, you know, that right now, like the biggest opposition for, for cannabis reform comes from supporters of cannabis. And, you know, that just doesn't make a ton of sense for me. And hopefully that that gets cleared up. But but, you know, it seems unlikely given the current state of the world. Yeah, I, I think we're, um, we're all pretty much thinking the same thing. You know, it's um, the incremental change will be great. But when? Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I want to just shift gears a little bit, you know, just talking a little bit about, you know, the supply chain, right? You guys mm-hmm. invest across the supply chain. Um, mm-hmm. you know, some funds are, you know, ancillary plant touching. So we're, I want to have a sense of where you think, um, which ancillary sector do you think it has the most growth, growth opportunities now? Ancillary meaning not plant touching? Not plant touching, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's tricky because I feel like, you know, th- there's a whole like if, if we were to see any sort of progress on, on the federal regulatory front, you know, again, insurance is something, you know, we've seen, you know, uh, a handful of carriers step into the space and thank God for that. Right. Because, you know, th- at the beginning, there, there were basically no rated insurers that would even touch a cannabis operator. And so people had to play their, their little games and, and set up a management company and try to get coverage. But then ultimately, if that policy ever had to be enforced, that's when you have this big question mark and you don't right. get an insurance policy to then be unsure if you'll pay out later, right? Like that, that's the whole point of insurance is to reduce concerns, especially when you need that, that funds. And so I think, you know, there's, there's a whole host of um, added benefit that could be happening if there were more insurers that moved into the space, but it's purely a regulatory impediment that's keeping them out. Um, beyond that, I mean, we've barely scratched the surface in terms of any sort of ancillary tech-focused platform, whether it's logistical insights, um, what, whether it's like you know better decision-making tools for these operators, really even just in-house tools of you know something along the lines of a QuickBook, right? Recording your POs, recording what you've paid, rec- recording what you owe, like all of these are necessarily manual processes right now for operators, which is unfortunate. That being said, I think, you know, there's a, there's a whole host of companies alongside Bespoke that are stepping up and creating very modern solutions and services for the cannabis industry that are filling that void. And as much as it sucks that, you know, my last point was that I don't think there's going to be any meaningful regulatory change anytime soon. 
that's not such a that's not a totally bad thing. It's very, it's very, uh, you know, stress inducing and painful to deal with right now. But quite honestly, I think, you know, companies that survive through bouts of this will be set up for so much success whenever that change does actually happen. I think one of the biggest problems in 2017, 2018, there were a lot of, you know, people that were just here for the ride. They thought, you know, legalization would happen in 2019, they'd cash out as millionaires. So no one was actually focused on building a business that would sustain itself and actually had a purpose. And so I think as, as much as, as this is challenging, it is getting better. There are more allies coming to the space. And at the end of the day, these companies themselves are getting stronger because of it. And ultimately, this, I, I don't think anything is going to turn the tide um, of, of momentum from full-on legalization. It's just a question of when. And so I think companies that can, you know, do their part and survive up until that point and really succeed, um, you know, are, are just poised for, for much better things after that. I, I totally agree. And, and you spoke a little bit about this, um, you know, companies that, that are building these tools, right, to, mm -hmm. to support, you know, their business or like the industry as a whole. So considering how cannabis is one of the first industries built um, in the modern technology era, we talk about this all the time. How do you think fintech, you know, what you guys are, are leaning into will be leveraged in this industry in the future? And how will you guys evolve with these trends, right? You know, in, uh, you know, where there's a lack of, you know, of, uh, of regulation change, you know, we're building the tools. So how do you guys um, play in that? Yeah, I mean, I, I look at it more as like, you know, we've barely scratched the surface in terms of how we can be a true enabler of success with these cannabis companies. Like obviously capital, you know, objective number one is just have the resources for, for any of these companies to be able to do any, execute on any of the plans that they have internally. But for us, like I said, you know, our interests are very much aligned with the operator. So when we think about how to expand on our technological offering, whether it's streamlining the application process, whether it's providing insight for these borrowers to make, you know, more data-driven decisions rather than anecdotal decisions. Um, our, our, our incentives are to basically turn into a platform that does more than provide capital, but really does our part to make sure these borrowers of ours really do succeed. So whether that's leveraging market insights, you know, we see, I, I think bespoke, uh, you know, information advantage when it comes to cannabis is unparalleled because obviously yeah. we can see from a macro perspective how the overall industry is doing, but then we also see it from the bottom up, right? On an individual company by company basis. And something we started doing, you know, very early was understanding how we could use our place and leverage our network of borrowers to really help each other, whether it's, you know, a cultivator that's looking to sell, you know, some harvest and, and, you know, be having another borrower in our network that, you know, in introducing and helping to facilitate those conversations. That's something that, you know, it's a value add that doesn't show up in bespoke financials, but at the end of the day, we know that both of our clients, you know, see a lot more value in terms of working with us outside of just the capital. And the idea is now with the technology is how do you do that on a massive scale, right? And how do you introduce new, new tangential benefits for these companies to work with us? Because at the end of the day, we're, we're, there's no world that exists where we succeed as a company here at Bespoke without our borrowers succeeding much, much more. Of course. And that leads to my final question. So what's the future for Bespoke? Um, tell us like, where you guys see the company, you know, 12, 24 months from now and, and where you think that that sits within the industry. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to be able to tell you where I see the world in 12 to 24 months, but I know, you know, that's right? a little murky. Um, I'm, like I said, for us, you know, again, I think we barely scratched the surface, like even within our core objective of being that capital provider for the industry, there's so much untapped opportunity. But for us, 
we've had a lot of exciting conversations with these other um, platforms, um, just in terms of how we could pair our services together, how we can go out and source meaningful services and, and really introduce a whole host of, of you know, uh, a financing and a data-driven sort of ecosystem for each of our borrowers. And so, you know, your your team uh, has the inside scoop on it and, you know, we'll, we'll be putting out some press releases shortly in terms of what, what some of these key partnerships have been. But, you know, our focus remains there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a huge lack of transparency in the space. Um, and there's a lot of separated ancillary service providers that we think if we were to, you know, partner together, we'd be in a position to better address the needs of, of this industry. And at the end of the day, you know, the industry, you know, these companies going in day in, day out and, you know, actually doing the job, that's what creates this opportunity for all of us. And I think we can't forget that. So when we talk about our one year, two year, five year plan, it's all about how can we come in and add value and enable success for, for these operators? And, and you know, the, the list is ever expanding. <laughs> well, that's great. And we're looking forward to seeing some of those announcements over the next couple of months. Uh, but George, thanks so much for joining us today. It was great um, learning a little bit more about the platform and the future of the industry. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me.